This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free confidential support is available 24-7 through RAIN's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. January 29th, 2008. West Leeds, England. In a small, dingy flat, 60-year-old Christopher Smith sits at his desk, scribbling his final words in a guilty deathbed confession. His writing is messy and illegible in places, a result of the incessant coughing shaking his weakened body. He is a skeleton of the violent force he once was. Smith is dying of lung cancer, and knows he has just hours left to live. He also knows that soon, his terrible past will be revealed for everyone to see. Five days ago, Smith was driving under the influence. Police stopped him and took a swab test to check if he had any drugs in his system. They don't know it yet, but in giving them a sample of his DNA, Smith has provided police with the biggest clue in a 30-year-old cold case, the brutal murder of 26-year-old Joan Harrison. When they run his DNA through their forensic database, he knows his time will be up. Guilt has been eating at his brain like the cancer spreading through his body. He needs to clear his conscience before it's too late. As he begins to write his confession, his mind is perhaps filled with pictures of Harrison. Her bright green coat, fur collar, and knee-length boots. Her battered body lying in her own blood after he was done with her. He finishes the note as another cough racks his body. To whoever it concerns, I would like to put the record straight. I can't go on with the guilt. I have lived with it for over 20 years. I am truly sorry for all the pain I have caused to anyone. God forgive me. I love you all forever. He knows this isn't and never will be enough for the unforgivable crime he committed. But he's too weak to do anything else. He stuffs the note into an envelope and buries it in the back of one of his drawers. If the police find this, it will finally give them the answer to one of the most infamous, bloody, unsolved murder crimes of the 20th century. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Christopher Smith, the words he wrote before he died. It's about a young mother brutally killed on a cold November evening. A struggling woman who fell into drink, drugs, and addiction. A violent killer who preyed on women in the north of England. It's about a community riddled with sexism and misogyny. A fraud who deliberately led the police and public down a dead-end path to divert justice. And it's about a man who died before ever paying the price of his crime. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the 20th of November, 1975, Joan Harrison's body was found in an abandoned garage in Preston. She had been raped, beaten, and murdered on her way to the pub for a late night drink. Though there were bite marks on her flesh and semen in her body, DNA technologies were too basic to find a match and the murderer was never discovered. The case remained open for 33 years. At the time of Smith's deathbed confession, the police and public believed that Harrison's murderer was the Yorkshire Ripper, a notorious serial killer in the north of England. False letters and tape recordings led them to suspect the Yorkshire Ripper while Smith slipped under the radar. But why did Smith murder young Joan Harrison? And how was he able to avoid justice until his dying days? To answer these questions, will need to take a look back at his life and enter into the dark, twisted mind of a killer. Christopher Smith was born in Derry, Northern Ireland in 1948 and quickly gained a reputation as an angry, violent child. His family often feared his outbursts of aggression and worried about his uncontrollable tantrums. When he was 15, the family moved to South Wales and Smith's taste for trouble followed him there. He became immersed in the crime scene and got arrested on multiple occasions for petty theft and lawbreaking. But if there was one thing Smith learned growing up, it was how to hide from justice. He created a list of 14 different aliases which he used whenever he was caught by the police. He was Chris Smith, Alexander Smith, and anonymous Mr. Smith. Sometimes he altered the spelling of his surname and occasionally changed it altogether. Inevitably, by the time he was an adult, he was a regular visitor to the police station. He moved all around the north of England, committing petty crimes and convincing officers he was a different man each time. Maybe if the police had any inclination of the violence he was about to inflict, they would have kept a closer watch on him. But to them, he was just a tiresome thief whose worst crime was simply lying to officers. In the early 1970s, Smith moves to Preston, North England, where his uncontrollable anger will target society's most vulnerable members. The United Kingdom of the early 70s is a nation in decline. Medical staff are striking, the economy is crumbling, and the country is governed by an unpopular conservative leader. It's an even grimmer scene for women, as they continue to live under gender inequality where male permission is needed to borrow from the bank, and marriage is still the best answer to social and economic instability. Domestic violence and marital rape aren't even considered crimes. And for the women who find themselves in failed marriages, society can be even less welcoming. Divorces often favor the husband and leave the wife with less than what she was set out with, stripping her of her children, her house, and any financial security. In 
For some women, divorce can be the push from comfort to poverty. So, many impoverished women turn to sex work. Although it's been deemed illegal by the 1970s, it's still a realistic way to make money, especially in a city such as Preston. Formerly a trading town, Preston is known for its leading industrial activity, but its variety of open spaces and poorly lit streets make it a perfect spot for sex work. It's also just a short way from Leeds' own red light district. But although women are drawn to it for its quick cash, sex work is an extremely dangerous business. Women working in sex are 12 times more likely to die than others their age. And 37% of sex-related murders go unsolved. The police are reluctant to help sex workers. They're more focused on arresting them and clearing up the streets. They look upon these individuals as stains on society who are easier to ignore than help. It's a blind spot in the justice system that sadistic men like Christopher Smith are all too happy to take advantage of. This is the world that 24-year-old, single mother of two, Joan Harrison finds herself thrown into. Harrison is a young woman living in poverty. She became addicted to alcohol and drugs a few years ago after the death of her first husband a tragedy which has pushed her into a downward spiral. Although once a proud homemaker and dedicated shop assistant, she now exists in a blurry world of alcohol and poverty. Her addiction has cost her a job, savings, her house, and even her two young children who have been placed in foster care. She rarely finds time to see them, but even if she did, they wouldn't recognize her as the everyday hardships of life have aged her significantly. With no job to pay her bills, she scrapes extra cash for food and shelter by engaging in sex work. It's a dangerous business for a 24-year-old woman suffering from addiction, but the world has very few alternatives to make money. By 1973, Harrison becomes addicted to cough medicine and drinks about eight bottles a day. Although initially prescribed to reduce the irritation in her chest caused by asthma, Harrison uses the syrup for the high it creates. The opiate drug in it metabolizes in her liver to produce morphine-like effects, euphoria, highs, invincibility. So with little happiness to find in her own life, Harrison grows dependent on the highs of this drug. But it isn't long before the addiction almost turns fatal. On a cold spring morning in 1973, the 24-year-old is rushed to hospital after being found unconscious outside a shopping center. Her liver has been saturated by cough medicine and alcohol and is quickly shutting down. Doctors drain the toxins from her body and manage to save her life. They admit her to the intensive care unit, where she spends a few nights recovering and slowly building back strength. This near-death experience should be a wake-up call. But instead, when she's released from the hospital and sent to stay with her sister, she returns to bad habits. And it's under her sister's roof that her dependency on drugs will lead her even further astray. By 1974, Harrison's no closer to getting clean than she was before her hospital visit. Although she no longer has access to cough syrup, her sister's house has unintentionally provided her with another type of drug 
codeine. Harrison stumbled across it while rooting through her sister's bathroom cabinet. It's been prescribed as a powerful painkiller and works the same way as cough syrup, providing relief from pain in small doses and euphoric highs when taken in large amounts. Thinking she's struck gold, Harrison takes the prescription and forges a doctor's note instructing the pharmacist to raise the dosage from 30 to 60 tablets. Her body's craving a high as electrifying as the one created by cough syrup. But her euphoria doesn't last long. Days before her 25th birthday, her sister finds her grinning in a drugged daze with an empty packet of codeine laying beside her. It doesn't take her long to work out what's happened. Harrison's dragged to court where the judge charges her with theft and forgery. Her addiction is plain for the entire courtroom to see, and yet no one offers her help to get clean. Instead of being shown services and rehab programs for users, she's cruelly labeled a total wreck of a human being and fined 51 pounds. No one spares a thought for the tragic circumstances she's using drugs to escape from. In just one afternoon, Harrison has been abandoned by her sister, family, and society. She's cast off as an unwanted burden of the state. With no job, no family, and very little money, Harrison moves out of her sister's house and into a small room in Avenham Street. Her room is let out by a 47-year-old man who takes pity on her and wants to help. Perhaps because he's the first person to show her kindness, Harrison falls in love with the older man, despite their 22-year age gap and the two begin a rocky relationship. The landlord manages to help Harrison get a job at St. Mary's Hostel for the Homeless as a part-time cleaner. He knows she's got potential and desperately wants to get her off drugs so that she can fulfill it. He encourages her to stay at home in the evenings so that they can cook and watch TV together. He even buys her a ring and proposes. Under all of her drinking and anger, he can see the proud, caring woman she used to be and promises to help her become that again. But she isn't used to being cared for and struggles to change her ways. Soon, her drinking binges will become more dangerous. They'll drive her away from the love and safety of her flat and into the fateful path of a killer. Thursday. 20th of November, 1975. Harrison is finishing her morning shift at St. Mary's Hostel when colleagues invite her out for an early Christmas drink. She leaps at the opportunity and follows her friends down Preston High Street to a local pub. The pub's warm and joyful. There's music playing in each corner. It's easy to get carried away. So, surrounded by friends and embracing the Christmas spirit, Harrison gives in to the alcohol around her. By the time she leaves, it's 4 p.m. and she's been drinking for over three hours. Staff at the hostel can tell she's in no state to work, but they can't let a vulnerable woman walk home alone as dusk is quickly setting. So they show her to a spare room where she can sleep for a few hours. But Harrison hasn't got time to sleep. She's close to falling behind on her rent and needs to make some quick cash. She knows of one way that's popular on certain streets of Preston. Sex work. She quietly wanders out of her room and leaves the hostel by a back door. She heads for a seedy nearby street where she and her friends occasionally hang out for drinking and late night fun. 
When Harrison finally returns to her landlord's flat, an argument erupts. He's been worried about her all evening, wondering where she's been. Harrison's in no mood to be lectured to. She wants to go out to a pub, have some fun with her boyfriend. After all, she's only 26, but he's insistent that she must stay in tonight. The two continue to argue, each one refusing to do what the other wants until Harrison snaps. She's been home for just 20 minutes, but can't stand being told what to do any longer. She grabs her coat, purse, and wallet and storms out. It's 10.20 p.m., and Harrison is heading down Church Street in a rage. The street is unlit, and it's hard to see where she's going, but she doesn't care. She turns up the fur collar of her green coat against the cold night air and starts walking in the vague direction of a pub. A few roads away from Harrison, battling the same cold November air, is Christopher Smith. Smith has just been released from Preston Prison, where he was serving time for petty theft. At 27 years old, he's still an angry man and prison has made him bitter. He's been walking for a few minutes, perhaps thinking about what to do with his first night of freedom, when he sees Harrison a little way ahead. In the dark, her green coat stands out like a beacon and he watches her long brown boots furiously marching down Church Street. Smith follows her as she turns onto Berwick Road. He's walking fast now to catch up. She takes another turn onto Frenchwood Street, and he does the same, his footsteps pounding after hers. Something about her makes him excited, but angry. He wants her, but feels disgusted at his own physical lust. He checks over his shoulder. The street is empty. The two are entirely alone, and with no light apart from the occasional headlight of a passing car, Smith and Harrison disappear into the darkness. He whistles to catch her attention and she turns around. For a moment, Harrison stares into his eyes. He strides towards her, quickly with intent. She barely has a chance to react before he's upon her, ripping off her coat with a desperate haste. He sees a disused garage a few meters away and pushes her into it, throwing her coat onto the floor. She falls with the coat, dropping her purse as the contents spill out, but there's no time to retrieve them. He attacks her without hesitation. She screams out in pain, but his strength is too much and he forces her body down. Afterwards, he sees a discarded hammer shining malevolently on a shelf above Harrison. He stands up, walks to the shelf, and reaches for it. Struggling for breath, Harrison staggers to sit up. She's facing away from Smith and has no idea what's coming. He stands behind her, watching her shoulders heave as she breathes deeply. Then, he strikes the back of her head hard with the hammer. She cries out and tries to stand, but he hits her again, causing her to tumble to the ground. Smith strikes Harrison over and over until Harrison finally stops moving. Then, Smith realizes what he's done. He's just killed an innocent woman. He'll spend the rest of his life in prison for this if they catch him. Overcome with panic, he rolls her lifeless body over so that her face is pressed against the ground. He pulls her coat and lays it across her head and back. Then he takes her boots and places them on her feet. 
If anyone sees her from a distance, they'll think she's just a drunken woman who has fallen asleep in the shelter of an abandoned garage. But before Smith flees the murder scene, his thieving instincts return. He twists the two golden rings from her fingers and buries them in his pocket before stuffing her purse and wallet underneath his winter coat. He slips out of the garage, looking around the darkness to see if anyone could have seen him emerge. It's still empty. Smith hides the hammer in his coat and runs back down Berwick Road, trying to put as much distance as he can between himself and the body of Joan Harrison. Then, he disappears. a.m., Sunday the 23rd of November, 1975, three days since Harrison was killed. A local woman is walking to her newsagents to collect the Sunday papers. It's a windy morning and gates are swinging in the breeze. As she walks down Berwick Road, the wind blows open the door of a disused garage at number three Frenchwood Street. The woman stops in horror at what she sees. Face down, lying in a pool of her own blood, is the dead body of Joan Harrison. Her green coat is still in place over her head, but the wind has blown it up from her back, exposing her bra straps. Blood has seeped from under the coat and formed a ring around her head. Her boots remain balanced on top of each foot as one of her legs hangs limply outside of her trousers. It's sickening to see her body displayed like this. Although Smith tried to cover up the murder, his clumsy attempts have left her exposed even in death. In a terrified panic, the woman calls the police. Detectives arrive at the scene and are hopeful they'll be able to identify the murderer after examining Harrison's body. They find a deep bite on her left breast and traces of semen. The murderer hasn't been careful enough and his DNA is all over her body. Although DNA testing in the 1970s isn't extensive, it's able to reveal that the murderer is a man with blood type B, the rarest blood type in the UK shared by just 6% of men. This discovery means the search can be narrowed down. 80 detectives rush to Lancashire and interview 100,000 individuals. Who was the last person to see Harrison? Where was she headed that night? Had she done anything that could provide a motive to her murder? But after weeks of interviews and thousands of statements, the investigation starts to slow. Witness testimony proves to be a dead-end road as many of Harrison's associates are alcoholics who suffer from memory loss. They can't remember enough to give leads or suspects. Police briefly arrest her landlord and another ex-boyfriend, but both have strong alibis from that night and are soon released. Even the post-mortem is unhelpful as it comes back inconclusive. Forensics can't pin down a time, day, or even a potential murder weapon. The wound to her head looks like it's been made by a stiletto, but seeing as Harrison was wearing boots, not heels, detectives decide it's more likely to have been a hammer. The one thing police, detectives, and forensics can agree on is that Harrison was sexually assaulted before being beaten to death. Months pass, and the case remains unsolved. Then, detectives find Harrison's wallet hidden under a bush in her local park. Her landlord confirms that this was the wallet she carried with her that night. 
Thinking they finally found a lead, police close the entire park to search for more clues. The lake is drained, sniffer dogs are released, but again, nothing more is found. Even the wallet has no fingerprints on. But Harrison also took a purse out with her that night. Surely if the wallet was in the park, the purse can't be far away. Their search for the purse leads them to Christopher Smith, who gets brought in for shoplifting. Amongst other various stolen items in his possession is a woman's purse. The police briefly question Smith, but they quickly become convinced that he had nothing to do with Harrison's murder. He somehow manages to appear calm and cooperative, denying that he ever came across Harrison and showing not even the slightest trait of violence. If he still harbors the aggression he felt as he killed her, he doesn't show it. And when they compare the purse in his possession with descriptions given by Harrison's landlord, it's not a match. As a petty thief, Smith's stolen more purses than the one he took from her body. And little do they know that he has her actual purse squirreled away in his flat. He's released and never questioned again as the police are thrown back to square one. Despite appearing calm, Smith's run-in with the police terrifies him. He waits a few months for detectives to retreat from Preston and then places Harrison's purse in a dump hours away from the murder scene. It will be another year until police find this, and when they do, they'll be no closer to catching the real killer. Fifty miles east of Preston, another killer is on the loose. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, is beginning his murderous rampage against women in the north of England. Like Smith, he has an aggressive hatred for females. He believes it's his God-given duty to rid the streets of lower-class women and girls. And in 1975, the same year as Harrison's murder, the Ripper makes his first kill. 28-year-old mother of four, Wilma McCann, is walking home from a night out when the Ripper offers her a lift in his truck. She agrees and asks if he'd like sex for five pounds. But, disgusted by the fact she's a sex worker, Sutcliffe strikes her twice in the back of the head with a hammer before stabbing her body and breasts. McCann is found lying dead in her own blood the following morning. As with Harrison's murder, the police find no clues that lead to a suspect. Interest is soon lost in the case, and people discard it as an inevitable attack on a sex worker. But a year later, Sutcliffe strikes again. He attacks a woman in Leeds with a hammer before stabbing her to death with a screwdriver. Her body is left in an abandoned yard with her trousers and bra pulled down. The deaths are alarmingly similar to Harrison's and police begin to link the attacks. But still, they have no leads. Both Smith and the Ripper are undetectable. Between 1976 and 77, Sutcliffe kills three more women and attacks another two. All victims are killed by hammer strikes to the head and left with clothes strewn over their body for innocent passers-by to find. They're deliberately laid out in gruesome displays and it's obvious that the Ripper has taken pleasure in the murders. The police are drowning in public pressure to solve the Ripper cases and with over 400 officers working overtime, they're desperate for any clues. But somehow, Sutcliffe is always a few steps ahead. 
And so a pandemic of fear spreads across the north of England as women wonder if they'll be the Ripper's next victim. There is one person who's not scared or horrified by Sutcliffe's killings. John Humble, an unemployed laborer living in the north of England, is fascinated by him. He's an abusive man himself who's been convicted of assaulting a policeman in the past. He's always had an appetite for crime and violence, having idolized the Victorian murderer Jack the Ripper since childhood. So, in 1978, when nine women have died at the hands of this new serial killer, Humble gives into his twisted temptation and throws himself into the Ripper cases. He uses parts of the letter Jack the Ripper sent to police in 1888 and crafts his own version. I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. My purpose is to rid the streets of them sluts. Up to number eight now. You say seven, but remember Preston 75. Get about, you know. Warn whores to keep off the streets, because I feel it coming on again. Yours, Jack the Ripper. When the Lancashire police receive this, they write it off as a hoax. It has no traces of exclusivity. The information isn't different to what's already been reported by police or guessed at by journalists. The letter's contents could have easily been taken from newspapers, TV reports, or local gossip. In fact, it's hardly different to the 200 other letters the police have received that claim to be from the Ripper. But one thing does stand out. The mention of Preston 75 is almost certainly Harrison's murder. The case is still open and with no fresh leads, the police have been starting to believe she was Sutcliffe's first victim. Her murder was the same year as McCann's, and her position as a sex worker aligns with the Ripper's other victims. In June 1979, Humble sends more false leads to the police, a tape of his voice admitting to the murders and another letter warning women of his next intentions. The recording is delivered in Humble's thick Geordie accent. When the tape is released to the public, it is immediately met with skepticism from the Ripper's surviving victims, women who, based on descriptions of his methods of killing, are convinced they were attacked by Sutcliffe. They describe their assailant as being around five foot eight, with dark hair, wearing workmen's clothes and Doc Martin boots. Features that perfectly describe Sutcliffe. Crucially, they all agree that he had a distinctive Yorkshire accent. But since none of these women are sex workers and therefore don't fit the victim profile built by detectives, their accounts are dismissed. Plus, police have information they don't. They've tested the saliva on the envelope and found it belongs to a man with blood type B, the very same type found on Harrison and the Ripper victims. The chances that three men linked to one crime all share this rare blood type are incredibly slim so police decide to follow up on the two supposed leads from the hoaxes. Humble's Geordie accent places him in Wearside, North England. So they interview hundreds of men from Wearside and release all suspects who sound different, including Sutcliffe himself. Sutcliffe was called in after police found a five pound note on a victim and traced it back to Clark's transport, where Sutcliffe worked. But his accent doesn't match the tape, so he's released. In fooling the police so dramatically, Humble allows Sutcliffe to continue killing for another two years. 
It will be another 35 years until Humble is discovered to be the man behind these hoaxes and is arrested for perversion of justice. For now, police simply believe that Humble's letters must be real, making the Ripper Harrison's murderer. It's now January 1981, and Sutcliffe has killed 13 women and attacked seven. He's become infamous throughout the whole country and is set to dominate criminal history books. All clues have been fruitless. The Ripper is just as undetectable as he was six years ago. But then, on the 2nd of January, a police officer notices a man driving with false plates on his truck. The driver is accompanied by a young woman and seems extremely nervous when police stop him. The man who steps out of the truck is Peter Sutcliffe. They search the truck for any traces that it could be a stolen vehicle, but instead they find a hammer, knife, and screwdriver buried under the front seat. These are all weapons the Ripper is known to have used in his murders. Then the realization hits the officer. Sutcliffe's nervousness, the weapons, the young girl. They finally caught up with the Ripper. Sutcliffe is placed under arrest and called in for questioning. For a violent serial killer, he is surprisingly cooperative with the police. He admits to each of the 13 murders and describes them in detail. It's chilling to hear a man recall these murders with such impassivity. He describes his methods of killing as though he's remembering minutes from a meeting. Each one is coldly brought back to life as he lists all the facts about them, from their names and towns to the specific weapons he used. Perhaps Sutcliffe's proud of his crimes, or maybe he finds no reason to hide from the police any longer. One crime missing from his repertoire is the murder of Joan Harrison. Sutcliffe vehemently denies any association with her and swears he had nothing to do with the murder. In May 1981, Sutcliffe's found guilty of 13 accounts of murder and seven accounts of attempted murder and is sent to prison with a minimum sentence of 30 years. At last, the police have found their killer. Women can leave their houses and start to reclaim the streets. And in their celebration, the police choose to ignore Sutcliffe's claims of innocence to Harrison's murder. It's easier to write her off as an undeclared Ripper victim than admit to the country that another killer is on the loose. But if police were more attentive, they'd notice that Harrison could not have been killed by the Ripper. You see, he was repulsed by sex workers and only touched them to kill them. Harrison, however, was evidently sexually assaulted by her murderer before she died. Christopher Smith has, through the unlikeliest of means, been able to escape justice. But it won't be long before he kills again. In 1982, Christopher Smith's released from prison where he's been serving time for attempted rape of a 17-year-old girl. Perhaps looking to make a fresh start, he marries his short-term girlfriend and the two move into a small flat in Leeds. But it doesn't take long for the marriage to turn sour. Smith's anger hasn't subsided and he's often violent towards his new wife. In 1983, Smith finally ends the marriage in the most brutal way possible. The pair are arguing again, and in a fit of uncontrollable rage, Smith takes a knife from their kitchen and plunges it into his wife's body. As she screams out in pain, 
He holds her down and stabs her again repeatedly until she stops fighting back. But her dying screams have been enough to alert the neighbors. They call the police who swiftly arrest Smith. This time, it doesn't look as though he'll be able to escape justice for murder. But although her body is covered in multiple stab wounds, Smith pleads not guilty. He swears that she simply fell on the knife he was holding to defend himself. Remarkably, the jury believes Smith's story. He presents himself well in court, appearing calm when spoken to and genuinely distraught at the death of his wife. They find him not guilty and charge him with manslaughter. Once again, Smith has escaped from the clutches of justice. As the decades roll by, Smith manages to stay out of trouble and in 2005 is diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. It seems as though he'll never be found guilty of the murder of Joan Harrison. But by now, the police database has been updated with new technology, making detective work easier and more accurate. Computer files hold information on all individuals with criminal records, including their fingerprints and blood types. This technological advancement might finally help them crack the case of Harrison. You see, after a routine review of the Ripper hoaxes, forensics in a London lab discover that DNA on the letters doesn't belong to Sutcliffe. Instead, it matches with a man who's recently been arrested for being drunk and disorderly, John Humble. And of course, Humble's voice sounds exactly like the Wearside accent from the tape sent to police in 1979. Almost 30 years later, they finally discover the amateur criminal behind one of Britain's most infamous perversions of justice. And although they arrest Humble and sentence him to prison for eight years, they know this is not enough. If the letters were a hoax, then the Ripper didn't murder Harrison. So who did? And where is he now? It's 2008 and Christopher Smith is out in Leeds having a few drinks alone. He's now 60 years old and is suffering badly from his lung cancer. He rarely has good days and spends much of his time in bed or sitting in his small flat. Tonight, as he slowly walks to another pub, his mind is perhaps haunted by the memory of Harrison, as she too walked alone on what would be her final night on earth. Over 30 years have passed since her murder, and Smith is still the only living person who knows what happened. But although he somehow slipped under the radar, the events of that night have always haunted him. Knocks on the door make him jump. He's terrified of police sirens, and he refuses to ever talk about his past. Smith finishes his drink and gets in his car. But after just a few minutes of driving, his worst nightmare comes true as police sirens flash and signal him to pull over. Officers breathalyze him and ask to take a swab test. At first, he hesitates. If they get his DNA, then it's all over. He knows they found his samples on Harrison's body, and he was rescued only by the limited forensic technology of the 20th century. But now, police can trace virtually anyone. Thinking it will look suspicious if he says no, he reluctantly obliges to the test. Five days pass and Smith is stuck in his flat, worrying constantly about the swab he gave to police. He knows he should go to the station now and tell them what he's done instead of waiting to be hunted like this. 
but he can't face dying in jail. So, following in Humble's footsteps, Smith leaves a letter for the police. In the letter, he all but confesses to the murder of Harrison. He admits to living with guilt for something he did 20 years ago and swears he's stayed out of trouble ever since. He repeatedly apologizes to everyone he's caused pain. But he never writes the name Joan Harrison or gives any indication why he brutally murdered her. Maybe he just can't bring himself to say it. Maybe he wants to keep the police guessing as long as they can. Or maybe he never even knew her name. A week passes, and police run DNA from his swab test through their system, expecting to add it as a new entry. Although it's been legal to retain the DNA of criminals and suspects since 2001, Smith has stayed out of trouble for the last 20 years, so he's not yet in the system. But then, it flashes up with a match. The DNA they've just entered matches with that found on Joan Harrison's body in 1975. Forensics also discover that Smith is blood type B. Finally, they have all the evidence needed to convict him. But it's a race against time. Unbeknown to the police, Smith has just hours left to live. Police squads rush to his flat, preparing to arrest and make him finally pay for his crime. But they're too late. Smith died peacefully in his flat, just six days after providing the swab test. He'll never be brought to justice for what he did to Joan Harrison. Police find the deathbed confession buried deep in one of his drawers. It's the last piece in a 33-year-old jigsaw showing Smith to be the brutal murderer. Finally, after three decades of mystery, the case of Harrison is resolved. But although police can celebrate that they found the murderer, one question remains forever unanswered. Why did Smith kill Harrison? Did he share a similar hatred against women like the Ripper? Was the murder calculated or a sudden impulse? Did Harrison know her killer? No one apart from Smith will ever know the answers to these questions. And if Smith hadn't been drunk driving during his final week on Earth, the murder of Joan Harrison may well have never been solved. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we travel back to a hot day in late July of 1966, when a little girl named Brenda Sue Brown went on a routine errand and was never seen alive again. The police hunted for her killer for decades, but never found a viable suspect. That is, until 2002, when a seemingly kindly old grandfather by the name of Early Parker began confessing on his deathbed. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.